Welcome to Christ the King this morning. I wonder how that phrase, born again, strikes you, as in you must be born again. I have two reactions to that, uh, neither of which are entirely positive. My first reaction to that phrase, born again, you must be born again, is it just, it sounds a little bit dusty, a little bit old. Do we still even do born again? Is that something we still do? It seemed like born again had its heyday in the 70s and the 80s. It was uh, actually Jimmy Carter was one of the first presidents who identified himself as he was a born again Christian. Billy Graham, who recently passed away, whose uh, ministry was just phenomenal in its impact. Well, he preached powerfully for born again, uh, to be born again, but again, that was some years ago, 70s, 80s was the heyday of his ministry. Or Chuck Colson, you may be familiar with that name. Uh, Chuck Colson, uh, the founder of Prison Fellowship, wrote an autobiography entitled Born Again, writing again in the 70s and 80s. And it just feels just a little bit dusty. Do Anglicans do, isn't that more of a Baptist thing anyways? Do we even do Born Again? So that's my first reaction to Born Again. Maybe yours is the same. The second is it sounds a little bit dramatic, Born again. Now, if I hear that phrase, I think it applies, without much reflection, I assume that it applies to the destitute, uh, that have the dramatic, see the light and turn around. Like Chuck Colson, for instance, you may know that he was, uh, he was arrested in connection to the uh, Watergate scandal, and uh, he, uh, in prison, he converted. And uh, so appropriate for him to say he was born again. And for the destitute, the one with no hope left, who suddenly, dramatically sees the light, who puts down their wicked ways and begins a new life. Well, yeah, that, it seems appropriate that that person would be born again. But what about the rest of us whose lives just don't seem to be that dramatic? We don't have the dramatic lows or the dramatic highs. Well, if we're a little bit incredulous about the, or confused by this statement, you must be born again. We're in good company. We're not the only ones to encounter that question and think, huh? Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was just as incredulous as you may be. Turn there in your service sleeper. You may want to open your Bible as well. Now, we're told a lot about Nicodemus in a few short verses. We're told that he was a Pharisee, and that implies that he was a ruler. Uh, he was a, not only a ruler of his people, but someone who was, among other things, extremely moral, extremely attentive uh, to God's law. He was a moral person. He was a leader of his people, respected in his community. He was inquisitive. He came to see Jesus courageous. He came to see Jesus at dark. Do you notice that we're told that he came at night? Why at night? Because Nicodemus' association with Jesus would probably not have been received kindly by Nicodemus' peer. So he's courageous. He's respectful. He addresses Nicodemus as, or pardon me, Nicodemus addresses Jesus as his teacher, a rabbi, a term of respect. Respectful, moral, a community leader who believes 
in the divine origin of Jesus. We believe that you are from God. Now, if that person walked into this or any other church, not only would we receive them as a card-carrying Christian, we would probably want them in vestry, small group leadership, children's ministry, youth ministry, etc. God, please send us more people who think that Jesus was divine and uh, are respected in their community and are morally upright. Would that, that person walk into our doors more often? You'll note that Jesus is less enthusiastic about Nicodemus than uh, I would be. He tells Nicodemus that in his present state, and in his present state was good, Moral, respected, respectful. By all measurable standards, Nicodemus was in a pretty good spot. Yet in his current state, Nicodemus is blind to the things of God. You cannot see the things of God, the kingdom of God, says Jesus in verse 3. And despite the promising path that Nicodemus is on, and Nicodemus is on a promising path, he's seeking after Jesus despite contrary opinions uh, that he's going against. He's seeking after Jesus. Yet, despite his promising path, without some dramatic change, he will not enter the kingdom of God in the age to come. That's obviously a reference to eternity. This, this is something with eternal implications. And the change that Nicodemus must undergo is so dramatic so profound that can only, it can only be described in this dramatic terms of being born again to a new and different life. So our first observation is the necessity of, of being born again. Apparently, Jesus did not think being born again was a passing fad that went out with the 70s and 80s. He thought it was an absolute prerequisite to experience God now and to enter God's presence in the age to come. So the necessity of being born again. Let's think about the nature of being born again. What does it mean to be born again? Because obviously Nicodemus, there's some deficiency. There's something that he lacks. What is it? What does he need in order to be born again? He's moral. Does he need to be more moral? He's a leader. Does he need to exercise more leadership? What, what is his lack? What's Nicodemus, Nicodemus missing? I think you'll find the answer to that question pretty interesting. Nicodemus' inadequacy, here it is. His inadequacy is this. It is his evaluation of Jesus Christ that is inadequate. And it is, it is his evaluation of Jesus Christ that must change, change radically, be born again. Pick up with me in verse 14 in our passage. Jesus has just reiterated three times the necessity. You must be born again, okay? And now he picks up in verse 14 and 15 
and describes the results of being born again as he refers to, of all people, he refers to himself. And he says two very interesting things about himself. Follow along with me. First, he says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. As Moses lifted up, lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, long story short, uh, that's a, a reference to an Old Testament story found back in the book of Numbers in which the Old Testament people of God rebelled against God for the umpteenth time. Snakes wandered through the Israelite camp by way of punishment. God made a remedy for their waywardness. Uh, a serpent, a bronze serpent on a staff. If you've ever seen the Hippocratic uh, symbol, right, the symbol in front of doctor's offices where the two snakes are on a staff, that's a reference to this story. And God said that if you, Israelites, look at that staff, you'll be saved. Jesus picks up on this imagery and says, now the Son of Man, referring to himself, must be lifted up, not on a staff, but on the cross. You must look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and be saved. And then follows probably the best-known passage in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that all who believe in him will not die but have everlasting life. Now follow along. What did Jesus, Nicodemus think of Jesus? A teacher. A great teacher. A divinely inspired teacher. What does Jesus say about himself? That he is the Savior, the Savior of all people, and he on the cross is the fullest revelation of God's love for the world and God's love for him. Nicodemus must see the Son of Man lifted up as his Savior. He must look at him like the Hebrews looked at that, bra that brazen serpent. Not a, plas not, not a passing casual glance, but to look at him personally, to look at him intently as, those, as that story referenced. And to see in Jesus Christ lifted up upon the cross the fullest expression of God's love. This is the nature of being born again. To be reborn in our personal evaluation and our personal belief in Jesus Christ. To see him not as a good teacher, but as a savior and the fullest expression of God's love. Now, we are in a sermon series entitled, Things We Must Not Give Up. It's a little play of words. Uh, we're in the season of Lent. Of course, in Lent, we often give up things. And so we're exploring over these next few weeks things that we just can't give up. Things about the Christian faith that may make us a little uncomfortable. Things that we would like to maybe ignore just a little bit. And I think conversion is one of those things that we would rather just uh, disregard. And being born again is one of the many ways the Bible speaks of the necessity for our conversion. And I think we're all just tempted to de-emphasize or to even ignore this repeated insistence that you must be born again. I think we'd all prefer a faith that required a little bit less of a dramatic decision from us, a faith that was a little bit more gradual. I discovered a new phrase this week, gradualism. If you look it up in Wikipedia, you'll find the same. Gradualism is something that applies to 
a wide range. It applies to biology and the, a gradual process of evolution. It applies to moral growth gradually becoming better. It provide, applies to a political process of uh, changes are made gradually. And as the name implies, gradualism suggests that profound change occurs gradually, increment, incrementally, I think I pronounced that word correctly, almost unnoticeably. And that's how profound change comes along. Have you seen the movie Uncle Buck? Uh, yeah. Very few people. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Buck starred John Candy, Macaulay Culkin. John Candy, his character, was a, a believed in gradualism. John, John Candy's character, Uncle Buck, is a little bit down and out. And he is, he's making a new start in life. And so he tells his sister-in-law, you know, I've, I've quit smoking. Sister says, oh, that's great. John Candy's character says, yeah, yeah, I went on to cigars. <laughs> after cigars, pipe, after pipe, chewing tobacco, after chewing tobacco, those, pat those patches. It's a five-year plan, a gradual plan for his self-improvement, gradualism. I think Christianity would be much more palatable if it were much more gradual. I mean, would it be nice if we could just be assimilated, sort of anonymously? You just kind of hang out with Christians, and then we could be kind of clumped into the category of being Christian as well? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if Christianity was just demanded our, our gradual moral improvement. Just take a few steps here and there. Even better, wouldn't it be great if Christianity could just be inherited by virtue of being born? Wouldn't that be so much more palatable, so much easier? But that would not be recognizable Christianity. Note what Jesus does not say to Nicodemus. He does not say to this well-to-do leader, moral, inquisitive, respectful, he does not tell Nicodemus, you know, just keep it up. You're on the right path. You're going to get there. You just keep on seeking. He doesn't say that. He says you got to change. You have to change, and your primary change is in your assessment of Jesus of who he is. You see, we may wish that Christianity would be just a little bit more anonymous, but we cannot remove the responsibility for a personal evaluation of Jesus Christ for each of us and be left with anything that still resembles Christian faith. Jesus asked his disciples, Jesus asks you and me, who do you say that I am? And while God works on all of us gradually, absolutely, he works on us slowly. He draws them to himself quietly. It is not helpful to think that a gradual drift without any deliberate personal decision and our spiritual life will eventually get us to the right spot. We cannot remove the necessity for our own personal
personal evaluation of Jesus Christ from Christianity. Who do you say I am? We may be moral. We may be respected. We may be respectful. We may hold a high opinion of Jesus. We may be regular at church. Nicodemus was all this and even more. Still, Nicodemus must be born again, and still, we must be born again. Martin Luther King Jr., in his I Have a Dream speech, in which he confronted the evils of segregation, said this, This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. And of course, what he's, you see what he's arguing? Let's not have any more gradual, in small steps. Now is the time to make a choice. Now is the time to tell Jesus who he is. One of my friends, some of our dear friends, are members of the First Baptist Church down the road. And their daughter was baptized some years ago. Their daughter's good friends with my daughter, is 11, 12 years old. And uh, as is a tradition of that church, the pastor asked this little girl, as he asked all candidates for baptism, who do you say that Jesus is? And uh, the, the baptismal font, actually, if you pull back these curtains, that's where the baptismal font of this church is. And in, in this church that I'm referring, the, the baptismal font is high and lifted, uh, high above the congregation, and this little girl in a, just a, a pure, innocent voice said to the question, who is Jesus Christ to you? She said that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. She is the one that I look to, like uh, the Hebrews looked at the brazen serpent. He is the fullest expression of God's love for me. She didn't say all of that, but that is what she implied. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Now, if you ventured outside on Friday or even Saturday, you felt the power of the wind blowing and blowing and blowing. Jesus referenced the blowing of the wind here as well. He says in verse 7, do not marvel. No, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from. The wind of God's Spirit is blowing. It was blowing in the life of Nicodemus. That's how he ended up at Jesus' door in the midnight hours. The wind of the Spirit of God was blowing him in that direction. And although it's not recorded here, Nicodemus was, in fact, born again. The next time we encounter Jesus, he is with someone named Joseph of Arimathea, caring for the crucified body of Christ. Nicodemus did look at Jesus lifted high on the cross. Let me cite the testimony of my own experience. Many years ago, the wind of the Spirit was blowing in my life as well. I had graduated from college and in an all-too-predictable path had not gone to church in many years. I had lost a lot of direction and was quickly losing all sense of momentum. And uh, it was a day I graduated and 
I looked underneath my bed and found an old student Bible <laughs> gathering dust. It hadn't been opened in years. So I pulled out that Bible and I flipped it open. I did what you're never supposed to do. You're never supposed to just randomly open the Bible and read whatever falls. But that's what I did. And I landed on a passage from the same gospel, John chapter 10, verse 10, which says, Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it to its full. That was the wind of God, the Spirit of God, pushing me, blowing me in a particular direction. And I'm so glad I went the direction that wind was blowing me. You and I, we can walk against it. We can fight against the wind. But I'm so glad that I did not, because that wind brought me back to church. And about a year later, after some study and after some reflection, I, like Nicodemus, like countless others, was born again. And I trusted in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I believe that God's Spirit is blowing still. It's blowing now, blowing in your life, and blowing in mine. We don't know where the wind comes from, but we know the direction it's blowing. It's blowing the same direction that it blew Nicodemus and blowing the same direction that it blew me. It's blowing us towards Jesus Christ. So come to him now deliberately. Come to him personally. Come to him as he deserves to be come to, as a Savior and a Lord your Savior, and your Lord. But friends, we must not give up conversion.